This episode of the Political Worldview podcast is funded by the University of Birmingham's Alumni Impact Fund. For more information on this and other projects, please visit birmingham.ac.uk forward slash alumni. Hello world, welcome to the Political Worldview podcast, October 23rd, 2017, the Goodbye Spain, Hello Again Tribalism edition. I'm Adam Quinn, Senior Lecturer in International Politics at the Political Science and International Studies Department of the University of Birmingham in England. I'm joined as usual by my regular co-host, Scott Lucas, a Professor of International Politics and an editor of news and commentary site EA Worldview. How are you doing, Scott? Oh, it's such a fine day today in the heart of England in Brexit Britain, how could I complain? No, an array of snacks in front of you. That's called a belated lunch. (laughs) Yeah, like a a pie, is that? An as-yet-unpeeled banana, a cup of tea. It's a a luxury buffet of academia's finest provision going on in the corner. Only the finest cuisine at the University of Birmingham. Yes. Uh, Cristala is laboring in the salt mines in service of an academic deadline today, so unfortunately she can't be with us. But in her stead, we are lucky enough to be able to welcome a debutante to the podcast, Sumed Rao, who is a doctoral researcher at the Institute of Conflict, Cooperation and Security, and he's an expert in why people fight about stuff within countries and why they sometimes stop, which is going to come in handy today. How are you doing, Sumed? Hello. Um, I'm doing well. Hopefully, my understanding of why people fight will come in useful. That's the plan. If not, then uh, then we might have to pull the plug halfway through. <laughs> I'll make up something. It'll be uh, insightful. Looking forward to it. Great to have you with us. Our two topics today. First, after weeks of escalations between the separatist leaders of Catalonia and their hardline counterparts in Madrid, has Spain reached the tipping point en route to a true crisis? Second, can our democracy survive tribalism? So asked English-American journalist and small-c conservative gadfly Andrew Sullivan recently in a long and interesting piece in New York magazine. We give the question and his take on it our best shot. Since 1978, when Spain adopted a new constitution following the death of the authoritarian dictator Francisco Franco and the restoration of democracy, Catalonia has been recognized both as an autonomous region and a nation, along with a couple of other parts of Spain. That constitution also, however, contains firm language about the indissoluble unity of the Spanish nation and state. This strategic ambiguity created breathing space in which Catalonia has done pretty well for itself in the years since, prospering, relatively speaking, as Spain's wealthiest region, accompanied by high levels of governmental and cultural autonomy. Nevertheless, a sizable portion of Catalans, though rarely a majority according to opinion polls, have continued to favour full independence. That takes us up as far as the financial crisis of 2008 and a Supreme Court decision in 2010 that cut down plans for still greater regional autonomy. Both of those things meant that support for independence has been ticking up in recent years, and separatist parties currently control a majority of the Catalan parliament. On October 1st, those local leaders sought to hold a referendum on independence, defying the national government and the courts. Madrid opted to crack down, sending in heavily armed police to disrupt the vote. They, in turn, were met with large, resistant crowds, leading to ugly clashes and significant violence. Since then, local leader Carles Puigdemont, I think that's the best I'm going to get with pronunciation. If anyone else wants to give me a, a correction, I'll take it. 
has claimed a mandate to declare independence unilaterally based on the 90% who voted in favour in that referendum, although he's just about refrained from doing so yet. Madrid, meanwhile, has rejected both the referendum result, which was based on a turnout of just 43%, and any negotiation about it. It's also for a... Uh, for extra bonus uh, no points, ordered the arrest uh, on sedition charges of a couple of local civil society activists and announced its intention to revoke the region's autonomy and reboot its parliament. So with that as the long prologue, I guess the question on the headline writer's lips is whether or not Spain is on the verge of civil conflict of a sort that we're not terribly used to seeing in Western Europe anymore and what this means for the EU, European neighbours, other countries with lively separatist movements, <laughs> Scotland, etc. So, Sumed, before we get into your legitimate credentials as an expert, uh, by absolute coincidence, you happen to be in Barcelona during the middle of some of this mess. It was mm. after there had been the referendum and the violence, after there had been some demonstrations on the part of the separatists about how upset they were. There was then a counter-demonstration of unionists saying, no, uh, we actually don't want to be independent. The large crowd that was just here saying they did, notwithstanding. What was the, um, what was the mood like from your perception as a like, holiday-making outsider who happened to be on the doorstep of his own, uh, his own area of expertise was, in the flesh? Was, actually, when I arrived, I wasn't sure whether this was going to be a, was a good idea me going to Barcelona at this time. Before that, I was worried about the backlash against tourists, but now it seems there was um, other things that those in um, Barcelona worried about. So it turned out to be quite an interesting holiday to add a little bit to the sightseeing. And did, did you get in amongst the like the crowds and protests uh, much? What was, yeah, what was the atmosphere so, like? I mean, like on TV and in the newspapers, depending on whose version of it you looked at. It was either like a carnival-like celebration or a fascist rally. Uh, both of those images seem to be out there, depending on who you were listening to. It was pretty friendly. On the on the Sunday that I arrived, that was the unionist um, rally. There were a lot of people. What, what I thought was quite a small rally turned out to kind of continue throughout the city. So as I walked along, I found we couldn't escape it. Uh, but But the vibe was kind of quite carnival-like and quite friendly, but... People, some people were angry, some people were really um, very um, angry at the um, separatists and really looking to uh, voice their opinion. So there were a lot of kind of different um, uh, posters, both uh, showing their unionist sentiment, but also um, how they feel a little betrayed by the Catalan government and how the Spanish government, the central government, was actually there to help them, how the national police were their police. Mm. So the messages were, were quite interesting. And also, I was quite surprised by the flag. It was a heart-shaped flag with the Catalan component, a Spanish component, and the EU. So the unionists mm. sort of seemed to side with the whole European Union project. So that was right, my Because the EU basically it. said that they're going to keep their noses out of this situation, which obviously, if you're the Madrid government, means all's good. If you're the separatists, means that suddenly the EU is now yet another institution within your, within your line of sight. So it's, it's like, it's very clearly a divided place. People have strong affiliations to whole separate narratives of what mm. exactly is going on here and um, to identities that, that undergird that. That's something you are pretty familiar with from your other work. You know, Indeed. You study Northern Ireland uh, amongst other uh, places that have gone through periods of intense identity-based division. Uh, mm. Some of them come out of that 
you know, in better shape than others. What, based on your knowledge of these kinds of things, do you think we should know about what we're looking at in this Catalan situation? I suppose the big difference between, say, Northern Ireland, which I've studied extensively, and and uh, Catalonia is I'm not aware that they're armed. And I think that kind of makes a difference in terms of escalation of conflict. That, But that said, uh, um, I suppose they, they, it's quite well positioned for access uh, to North, North African routes for that, if it should escalate. But as far as I'm aware, it's it's, it's very different in terms of conflict. In uh, Linguistically, there are... S- the Catalan as a, the language I understand it is between French and Spanish, but it's it's more kind of cultural difference as I my interpretation of it. it. It's also about power and money and influence as far as I. They're the region which produces, which earns the most and contributes most to Spain generally. Whereas in other situations, it's not always uh, Scotland, for example. I understand it. It. Mm. it arguably takes more than it gives from the sort of the fiscal purse, if you will. Well, that's the thing. Like, you get two different versions of this whole separatist thing. Mm-hmm. Like, some people's version is, oh, we're poorer and marginalized and without the kind of economic policy that focuses on our needs, we'll never get any different. So, you know, we need to get the neglectful central government out of the way so we can do our own thing. And then you get other versions like this or maybe the, the Liga Nord in, in, in Italy whose version is, oh, we're making all the money and doing all the sophisticated, difficult stuff and then being milked by the rest of the country for our resources, so we need to go our own way so we can keep more of our, more of our stuff. Mm. Which, they seem to have a lot of sympathy with one another, these sorts of movements, uh, depending on the, you know, the day and the time, because the basic principle of separatism is, is one they can agree on, but the, the narrative is often quite different, right? It's 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 rarely uh, yeah the narrative is usually quite different. It's rarely about money or, uh, but it tends to be about a sense of your own people, your own group or in group controlling the nation and what you define as a nation, the boundaries. Mm-hmm. So that kind of sense of control, however it sort of is interpreted or felt by the people, tends to be the the deciding force. And what's interesting about this, especially when it came in, at least in the UK context, is how many Brexiters were very much supporting. The Cat- Catalonia from independence from Spain, as a in a similar way as they felt as uh, from the UK from Europe. So there is this sort of sense, this sort of parallels that mm. people interpret situations similarly, or, or have a an emotion they draw on, or an interpretation they draw on with with independence. That, mm. And I think that's it's, it's quite similar in in these um, different mm. situations, even if the narrative or the reasoning behind it and the culture is different. Yeah, I mean, in, in this case, there is. I guess a narrative of grievance on the one hand, which mm. is that Spain went through this like authoritarian, like fascist esque dictatorship in the middle of the twentieth century. That was apparently not a great time to be like a, a vibrant supporter of Catalan's uh, independence and autonomy. Franco was not a big fan of that. The Madrid government was not very. Um, uh, generous in that regard. So up until the late 1970s, there is, you know, which is well within living memory, obviously, there was quite a lot of grievance built up about the central government not respecting local autonomy. And that, therefore, might lead you to have a narrative that says Catalonia is not respected, it is uh, it is not acknowledged in all of its specialness, and, and, and this justifies, you know, the need to push ever further for independence. On the other hand, people might say 1978 is a long time ago. Um, If in all the years since Spain has been democratic and Catalonia has had all of these recognitions and special statuses, you know, maybe uh, it is the sign of 
a, a certain disingenuous effort to mobilize historical grievance if one is still making those kind of complaints. Mm. So, I mean, that must be a big part of these sorts of situations, or I guess would be my question. Like, people, um, people will seize upon the historical narrative and... Uh, use it as fuel for mm. a set of grievances that have the desired outcome, which is we need to be separate. Uh, but they will in turn be accused of being very selective and some, sometimes even cynical and mm. instrumental in their mobilization of that, right? It's true there's a sort of instrumental aspect to historical grievances, but there, it does often play a part in modern culture. I looked at uh, Northern Ireland and sort of you talk of the Battle of the Boy and the Protestant ascendancy. Those kind of quite historical... Um, uh, kind of events and uh, uh, sort of approaches still kind of arguably play a part and people see that in uh, modern society. So there's both kind of an instrumentalization of it, but at the same time a, um, a continuing effect sometimes from these historical grievances. Mm-hmm. When, I, when I talk to people about sort of, when I learnt about the impact of uh, uh, Catholics in Northern Ireland joining with I think, Mary of Spain as opposed to, I think it was James of England at the time, mm. centuries ago. Uh, I, 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 you can trace the line about this, this and this kind of narrative of they're the enemy, they're, um, they're traitors, they're not really supportive of, of the country. Mm. And then you bring that to modern day in online, for example, where, uh, the Protestant, where the Protestant community tends to be quite involved in the army. A lot of um, uh, young Protestants tend to join the security forces and historically... It, that um, that aspect of the culture, defending the country, has been very much part of the culture. Mm-hmm. So there is that kind of use of those the history, and it really can mobilise. But at the same time, there's a, if if it's if there's no anchor there, if there's nothing really you can tie into psychologically, they don't take hold. Mm. So um, I suppose the question is: to what extent is 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 it true that? Um, uh, that Catalonia has been sidelined, and what extent can you really convince Catalonians that that's true? Mm. So um, I'd be I'd be interested to know where these grievances arise. It didn't seem to be primarily culturally linguistic, even though that's always a factor. Even in Northern Ireland, where there's people speak English, people still feel that their culture is under threat. So that's mm. that's definitely one component. But I'll be curious to know to what extent and what form that grievance really takes. It always strikes me about these situations that, um, and this is not an original insight to me, but nevertheless it's, it's, it's relevant, that the extreme people on both sides have like way more of a coalition of interests with each other than the moderate people on each side. It's like going back to... 1978, by all accounts, like you had people who were saying, uh, you know, Catalonia must be independent now. I don't know why we're involved in, you know, agreeing this new constitution even on on, on the separatist side. And then you had other people on the hard right in, in, in Spain saying you can't put language into this constitution acknowledging Catalonia as like a nation or anything of that sort. That's, you know, there's only one Spain and, you know, anyone who says otherwise is a, is a traitor. Um, like, update to today... And, you know, the people who are saying, uh, you know, off the back of this referendum with like a, what, a 40-something percent turnout, you know, we, you know, absolutely must have immediate independence. It's mm-hmm. the only legitimate course straight like just unilaterally declare it right now um, on the one hand. And then on the other hand, people in Madrid who want to say, 
there can never be another referendum to even because even discussing this issue is at odds with the inviolable principle that you know you can never leave Spain under any circumstances ever. And like people who want like those two sides, it seems to me, um, can make great mileage out of each other mm. because they're both it seems pretty unreasonable position. Like I think the, the position that most people of good faith could probably find their way back towards to de-escalate this situation is like well. You know, if the problem with the original referendum was that it didn't have a high enough turnout because most people who were opposed didn't want to vote in it because it was illegal and mm. outside normal process. Um, but the argument on the other side is, well, you know, you wouldn't let us have a referendum that was legal and with due process and with two campaigns and all of that. So, like, we did what we could. Most people would say, well, maybe what you need to do is come to an agreement about the conditions under which you will have a referendum and this will be resolved. But neither of the... Um, the two extreme camps really would would bite for that because uh, they can both get a lot of support out of just observing that the unreasonable other side simply will not allow the middle ground thing to happen. So everybody who is just got to like pick a binary way to go, and it's their extreme or the other extreme. I suppose the question is, how do you deal with um, secession? In and, and different countries have approached it differently. Sort of Canada and, and the UK had referendums about independence and the idea being that if you give them an opportunity um, through discussion they'll decide ultimately not to. So in the two referenda in um, Quebec, up on, on Quebec uh, independence I understood that they kind of decided to stay part of Canada and likewise with the Scottish referendum. Yeah. Which involves a degree of risk because if you're going to exactly. do that you've basically got to accept that if the vote goes the other way well you played and you lost and now you like you lost a part of your country. So and that's like that downside risk at the table is just inadmissible to a mm. certain kind of unionist, right? And, and but likewise, sort of conversely, the the risk of having a protracted conflict is always uh, much worse. I mean, and, and Spain had history with Basque separatism, and that was much more violent and much mm. more uh, a longer period. And it's only recently that Eta, I think, have come under control of sort of, and uh, it's no longer considered a risk. The separatists there, so. May, uh, it might well be that this sort of one approach catch-all um, is is what was decided by either the Spanish government or Spanish people that no one can secede. Mm. We don't discuss it, we don't talk about it. And it worked with um, the Basque separatists, so why will it not work with Catalan? Yeah, because I mean, and, and you always, you know, I guess the simple-minded way of looking at it is always, well, if most people in the region want to be separate, then they get to be that. That's just, you know natural law and right or whatever but then you know there are always questions about like well what is the region and who counts etc i mean because in the united states famously the, the 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 position that was taken and that like one of the world's most bloody civil wars mm. was fought over was that you can't just have most people in the bit that wants to leave say we're leaving and that's good enough you need everyone a majority of the whole needs to agree as well um and that's a whole other like narrative of, of, of legitimacy you can't break up a country without most people in the larger country that's being broken up agreeing to it as well as as, as well as the separate now i don't know that either of those like, has some metaphysical claim to being more right than the other but they are both two narratives of where legitimacy comes from that 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 seem um you know equally legitimate and it's unless you're vested for some personal reason in one side or the other it's hard to say which is right scott you've been um online uh as i have been uh because we both live we both live uh, uh in social media and therefore you'll have seen plenty of this conversation going on 
on on Facebook, on other outlets? What's it been looking like to you? Well, I'm actually quite invested in it a couple of ways in that uh, just by opportune chance, I've been to Barcelona quite often, been to Catalonia. Man, everyone's going to Barcelona. Yeah, Why but in, in the sense of actually just sort of immersing myself in it as a learning experience there uh, over the last few years. And then uh, the uh, digital editor for EA Worldview, Ellis Palmer, who's now at the BBC, was uh, is a big flu- hello to Ellis. Yeah, big hello. He's good- fluent in Catalan. It just finished doing a master's degree at the university there and therefore has been writing for us uh, on Catalonia, as well as publishing his first article for the BBC on it. So I think there's two things that strike me that I'll kick in for you all to consider. The first is, uh, as part of this learning experience in the, the region, and particularly in Barcelona, I was struck by this notion of historical memory of the way it plays out in a couple ways. If you go to Barcelona museums, um, the exhibitions on the Spanish Civil War of the 1930s, where Catalonia uh, was the heart of republicanism. I mean, the issue there is not Spain versus Catalonia, it's Republican versus nationalist. And so the idea that Barcelona was the last holdouts against General Franco and the nationalist. And that memory, however true it is, is the question. The fact is it's sort of exalted there. And then on the other hand, you have this dynamic in Barcelona that, of course, having sort of found itself or projected itself with the 92 Olympics and with the idea that it was an international city which was part of Spain but had this autonomy that you could really build on that. And economically, it did quite well. So is there, there is sort of this in-out dynamic with Barcelona in terms of its relations with Spain. But then that brings me to the second point, and that is, I guess, my somewhat biased point of view, or at least starting point, partial starting point, is that the uh, Spanish government overplayed its hand. It overplayed its hand in 2010. Now, it will argue that had to be a legal process, but the fact is is that when you close off the idea uh, that the people of Catalonia can decide on greater autonomy or pursue greater autonomy, uh, it set up a marker, a bone of contention. And had an independence vote been held in 2010, then quite likely it doesn't succeed. But once the word is you can't, then Mm. it feeds into the idea, well, you can't really tell us what to do. And that leads me to the current crisis. Now now there's been violence and repression, which will have raised the temperature still further, which means that if another vote were held, it will no doubt happen uh, under the influence of some emotions raised by by those recent events that might change way, the way things would have gone otherwise. Exactly. So to be specific, I think if the referendum, even if the Spanish central government opposed it, if you treat it as a non-binding referendum on October the 1st and you don't put in the national police, which has overtones of Spanish history before the mid-1970s, you don't put in the Spanish police to effectively beat up people mm-hmm. uh, if you don't detain people then maybe there's a majority that vote for independence, but then you can negotiate it. Once you put the police in to suppress the demonstrations, and the fact is Spain will say, well, there were, there's only a 42% turnout. It was extraordinary they could get a 42% turnout on that day, given the attempts to close the polling stations and occupy them with the Spanish forces. So that, in fact, was actually a victory for the independence movement. And now the further victory Postulized on the fact that if Madrid is really serious about talking about direct rule, mm-hmm. which means not just direct rule in terms of government, it means direct rule in terms of its security forces moving in and sort of exercising oversight over the Catalan police, you will mm-hmm. stoke up, I think, this drive for the fact of 
Uh, no. I mean, it, even those who may be lukewarm on independence, it now becomes a question of you actually simply are denying us our rights. And that puts on a whole different layer on this. Oh, the problem is that you could then end up with like processes that are basically fractured, where you have the referendum in favor of independence, where you get like 90% of 43% saying yes. So everyone from one side has clearly turned out. If the local parliament gets reset and there's a new election enforced by the central government, maybe you get a boycott from the other side. So you get like 90% of that full of people who are opposed to independence, but with no legitimacy either because so many people haven't turned up to vote. So you lose the ability to uh, address the fundamental issues through a shared process because people are only willing to turn out for their own version of whatever democracy is. And I don't forget there's a domino effect. If if uh, Catalonia becomes independent, then it might sort of... There's always the Basque area, and if that becomes uh, Right, they were shooting stronger. people and blowing people up, you know, well within our own lifetimes over it. So yeah. the idea that someone else is going to go independent and or they're not like, is like, inconceivable to them, and that which is part of why Madrid wants to resist this. Yeah. And, and the impact on France, and France would not be happy because there's a, an area of the south of France which, is, which would make up the Basque territory. Mm-hmm. So you've got a small regional kind of secession, secession movement will start to have kind of broader implications. And then, yeah, absolutely, I understand that. But the fact, if you want to get back to the core, at least where we are now, um, I mean, you can disagree with Puigdemont, uh, the Catalan leader, but I think his fundamental starting point, which is you've got to start with negotiations rather than imposition, mm-hmm. is absolutely spot on. Because imposition will lead to the allegations that Madrid is putting in a puppet parliament mm-hmm that they have their own security forces ruling the area, and then you get to a notion of occupation. Uh, But don't you you think he wants that, though? I mean, I have a strong feeling observing this, that the people who have orchestrated this referendum, uh, I mean, obviously they have the same nerves and fears that anybody would have at the prospect of an actual conflict tipping off, but basically the more harshly the central government cracks down the more I think their strategy is paying off, which is to have this turned into a polarizing um, binary choice between their route towards independence or submitting to an illegitimate uh, crypto-fascist crackdown from the center. I I don't. I see that point of view, but I don't. And and partly that is is because the the local leadership, from what I believe they were riding a wave of momentum, the size of the movement for independence has increased. Their position versus other parties in Catalonia has become stronger. And I think they thought they could get a mandate coming out of the polls. Uh, they then would have had leverage to negotiate with Madrid without mm-hmm. saying, look, we're independent. That's not, you would have not immediately gone to that. They would have leverage for the negotiations. Where those would have led is an interesting question. Now, of course, when Spain made its choice, when Madrid made its choice to inject the, uh, the troops, which is what it did, mm-hmm. then all the political calculations reset. Because we're not only talking about the fact that an independent Catalonia runs the political risk of isolation from the EU and has to survive, but it runs the risk of economic isolation. Mm-hmm. Because, of course, instability means that the banks, other financial institutions, large businesses uh, – we're already talking about leaving the region, going mm-hmm. to other parts of Spain, uh, which would have a serious effect upon the what is the leading one of the leading cards of the separatist movement, which is we can make you better off if we have more room to operate. Mm-hmm. I think there's, a, there's quite a strong um, economic argument against independence. 
I think, for Catalonia. I think that's quite um, clear to some extent. There are costs involved. But what always interests me is the fact that even though you tell people it's going to be very expensive, it'll, it might harm your income, people will still support a uh, separatist movement. Mm. So, um, and that's sort of that idea that there are other things other than kind of rational motivations yeah. for separatism. And it's it's yeah. an emotion, yeah. it's the gut. I'm, I'm struck by the fact that in Scotland, when I fully misjudged the motive of the independence referendum last time, that if you gave the space for people to consider the political, the economic arguments, they don't necessarily vote for independence. When you back them into a corner mm-hmm. and say, well, you know, if you vote for this, you know, it, the world will come down crashing on you. Bring it on. Could well be the response. Yeah. I mean, uh, Scott is an interesting one because it, it, we're running out of time, so this will be the last, uh, the last round. But I think it's worth noting it's, it's been very clear that this is a this is a situation on which outsiders are extremely keen to project narratives that suit whatever it is that their hobby horses require um, in this particular situation. So, like, I've been watching a torrent of propagandistic posts about the Catalan independence um, movement and the crackdown on it, um, emanating from people who are to my previous experience, entirely disconnected from what goes on in Spain or Catalonia, but who, because of their strong support for Scottish independence, have come to it now at this moment. Um, And the beginning, middle, and end of their analysis is that this is uh, an inevitable, legitimate independence movement that is being treated before the eyes of the world with monstrous injustice. And, you know, if the EU won't condemn it, then that's a sign that the EU is a tool of monstrous injustice and, you know, so on and so far. The, the, the logic goes from there. Um, and, you know, I appreciate no, no, doubt, no doubt there are like, people with their own separatist movements they want to crush who are on the other side, who want to say, more power, Madrid, knock yourself out. But, but you know, Given that this very clearly is a situation in which a peaceful, prosperous region and society seem to be about to like, talk their way into a costly, destructive, uh, possibly violent confrontation, when most people in the middle would probably like want to not do that if they had the choice, um, there's something particularly galling, I think, about the side of people who know nothing about Spain and who have never had any prior interest in it diving in to stoke uh, the sentiment on one side or the other because it like fits their cardboard cutout idea of like what independence movements should look like or be dealt with elsewhere. I mean, that said, sort of going to Barcelona, the um, La Ramblas was the place that Orwell arrived at when he came for, to fight um, the fascists. So I think sort of there's always been a, an element of people projecting uh, uh, their own ideas onto uh, a context. And this seems very much sort of like a, a Rorschach test of uh, what people feel about their country at the moment. Mm-hmm. So I've always, and I think it, it will continue like that on social media for a while, people being involved. And and the the irony is, is, is often kind of amusing for me, especially with the sort of the unionist Brexiters who would see this as an example of uh, EU oppression, but at the same time be opposed to um, the se- uh, separatism in Scotland. So you have yeah. this kind of people right. seeing it's, it's, what it's, they and, want and, to and, see. This, and the, like, the, 
the, the Scottish separatists, uh, one of whose main bones of contention allegedly was that they were being dragged out of the EU against their will by, by evil England, uh, now want to like, claim that the EU is putting its jackboot on the, uh, on the neck of, um, of, of, of the, the heroic Catalans. And that, you know, I guess it doesn't tell us anything that we didn't already know, which is that people will often flip on matters of principle depending mm-hmm. on what suits their argument. But it's interesting to see it played out in such quick real time. And the frequency of it. I think sort of 10, 15 years ago, these kind of concepts, this disillusion with politics and this kind of idea that independence or separatism is is uh, is the way forward, I think there's a, a rise in in that sort of those concepts and that feeling and that sense of uh, that central government not really serving uh, what you would like. It's time for Number of the Week, regular feature where we take a number that leads us to think about a story and talk about it a little bit. Scott, what numeral have you brought to the table for me today? It's a very simple number, the number three, for a very complex story. So if you can ride with me for just a minute, because three is the number of visits that a leading Iranian general, a man named Qasem Soleimani, head of the elite Quds Force, made to Iraqi Kurdistan just after the September 25th referendum, speaking of independence movements, in which 92, 93% of Kurds voted to break away from Baghdad. Why were those visits significant? Because uh, General Soleimani, it is reported by multiple sources, told Iraqi Kurdish leaders that uh, they should leave the contested city of Kirkuk, which is significant because it has lots of oil fields nearby, and that if they did not leave the city of Kirkuk, withdraw their forces, then the wrath of Baghdad, backed by Iran, would come down upon them. Uh, Whether or not his words had a direct effect, it has happened in the past 10 days that indeed uh, the Iraqi Kurdish forces have withdrawn from this city and that the oil fields, the major installations, have been overtaken or have been taken over by forces of the Iraqi government. Uh, What's the significance of the story? Well, There's obviously the ongoing thing about whether or not people can be allowed to pursue independence in Iraqi Kurdistan. But probably two things here. One is is that uh, if only it was the simple narrative of the Islamic State, remember them uh, having been defeated in their major cities in recent weeks, disappeared, everything would be sweetness and harmony. Uh, But it isn't that simple. Uh, The reminder of the clash between Baghdad and Iraqi Kurdistan shows us that there is layer upon layer of political, economic, social grievances and interest in play here. And the second issue, which I fear is being exploited by others who have their own reaction to the causes, is is that Iran is an influence in this and that Iran is looking to uh, have the most leverage of any outside power uh, over what happens in both Baghdad and in the capital of Iraqi Kurdistan, in Erbil. Uh, This is agitating the Americans. So beyond the nuclear deal, which we may have talked about, and the fact that that deal is under pressure, uh, the real game is, in fact, in these areas, whether it's Syria or in Iraq. And uh, there will not be a clear-cut resolution of uh, celebration of independence or a united Iraq in the near future, just more and more concerned. My number of the week is 13. 
which is a component in MS-13, uh, which is not an interesting piece of stereo hardware. It is the name of a street gang uh, and prison gang, I believe, uh, which operates well, originally operated in L.A., uh, which now has uh, something of a beachhead uh, in and around the Virginia um, metro space. I mention it uh, not merely because, like, that's bad. Uh, <laughs> this is a, it's, a, it's of Salvadoran origin, I should say, uh, but because it's come to play an unusually prominent role in the governor's election in the state of Virginia, which is happening at the moment. Virginia is a weird state. They have the governor's elections uh, in odd years. It doesn't even coincide with a midterm. Uh, it comes like, standalone, along with New Jersey. Uh, it tends to be the other one around the same time, uh, which means that it gets a lot of attention as a sort of bellwether of what the political trend is between the Republicans and Democrats at any given time. Anyway, in this given instance, uh, the two people running for election are a couple of fairly standard issue polls from their party's long-standing operatives in the um, um, in, in the region. Um, uh, Ralph Northam is the is the Democrat, long-serving elected official, and Ed Gillespie, kind of former lobbyist networker in uh, Republican circles, is running against him. Uh, but the connection, uh, you may be wondering what it is, uh, because it's tenuous, but it's become very, become very real in the campaign, um, is that for want of anything particularly uh, substantive about Ralph Northam's actual record that he might run on, uh, or indeed any ideas of his own that are, that are worthwhile in policy terms, Ed Gillespie has decided to write to fight a scorched earth campaign based on the issue of immigration, um, his way into which has been to run these amazing, and I do mean amazing, 30-second uh, ad slots that basically consist almost exclusively of imagery uh, of gang members of MS-13, so basically scary-looking, tattooed uh, Salvadoran dudes um, with threatening um, news voiceover excerpts about killing and rape statistics, etc., some scary music, and a reference to a vote about whether or not Virginia should have sanctuary cities in which, uh, which is to say places in which immigration uh, crackdowns are not permitted to, to take place using state resources, uh, for which, which Ralph Northam apparently, according to this narrative at least, voted for. Now, I should say there are not any sanctuary cities in Virginia, so it is not actually an issue on which there is a substantive beef. Uh, it's basically taking a vote that had no consequence, turning it into uh, um, a connection to the support of free reign for raping, murdering Salvadoran, uh, staring, photographed um, street gangs uh, and associating it with the, the, the standard cutout Democratic candidate running for the governorship of Virginia. But it is a sign of the times, I guess, that even in a state which has been trending uh, towards purple, as they say in America, trending away from being formally safe Republican to being potentially Democratic because of Democratic, uh, demographic change, it is, uh, it is nevertheless seen as a potentially winning play by the Republican Party to basically go all Willie Horton uh, to, to decide that you're going you're gonna to have a, an essentially content-free race-baiting imagery feast uh, as your main way of, of selling your candidate. 
and it's probably going to be quite consequential for how the Democratic Party thinks about future campaigns, how this works out. So if you want to know how the politics of race uh, and the imagery related thereto and immigration is, is flying in American politics, keep an eye on how that, how that turns out. And by the way, I recommend you go on YouTube if you think I'm, I'm pearl-clutching here about the nature of the, the ad that's being run. I would suggest you look up Ed Gillespie's uh, Virginia MS-13 governor's campaign ad because it's, uh, oh, it's quite something. Tribalism, it's always worth remembering, is not one aspect of the human experience, it's the default human experience. So writes Andrew Sullivan in a recent edition of New York Magazine. He continues, It comes more naturally to us than any other way of life. Healthy tribalism endures in civil society in benign and overlapping ways. We find a sense of belonging, of unconditional pride in our neighborhood and community, in our ethnic and social identities and their rituals, among our fellow enthusiasts. None of this is a problem. Tribal identity only destabilizes a democracy when it calcifies into something bigger and more intense than our smaller multiple loyalties, when it rivals our attachment to the nation as a whole, and when it turns rival tribes into enemies. And the most significant fact about American tribalism today is that all three of these characteristics now apply to our political parties, corrupting and even threatening our system of government. Um, as a political analyst, analyst and commentator, uh, Andrew Sullivan is sometimes right, sometimes a crank, but always interesting. Um, as he describes himself in this piece, I'm gay but Catholic, conservative but independent, a Brit but American, religious but secular, what tribe would ever have me? Uh, so he has his own heterodox uh, credentials, both as a writer of arguments like this and um, as a person with a vested interest in not having society go down the road that he that he that he laments here, um, it's partly a piece about American democracy and its problems. But as its route to get, and we may touch on that as we proceed. But as its route to getting to it, he invokes a set of tropes and ideas about the inevitability of people grouping uh, into identities that. You know, have at least a strong propensity for, for for conflict, if not an inevitability of it. So, as a good international relations uh, realist, uh, I found it intriguing in that way. Uh, but I know, Sumed, you were less enthused by some of the analysis and ideas contained in here. So, I thought we could come on and have a good fight about it. Um, what was it that, aside from the fact that he, uh, you know, is a bit of a uh, a bit of a pot shot taker in general as a writer, so he has a go at a whole variety of things en route to making his main points. But what, what, what was your take on the main argument he's trying to deliver here, and what what about it uh, landed for you, and more, perhaps more importantly, didn't land as someone who who studies this dynamic in the wild? I mean, when I first read it, my immediate response was like a long sigh. It's not an unfamiliar argument to me. I've read it a lot of times in a lot of different contexts and fields from the kind of from the psychological perspective, from the international relations perspective, political science. And the core idea is that at the heart of humans is this one nature. There's a um at the the core are tribes and they you can change the name of them, change the context, but they'll always still be there and they'll always play out, whether at the state level, whether in the ethnic group level, linguistically, etc. And uh, I don't, it, for me, it doesn't really work. It's, I mean, just looking at the, the paper, I could, the range of what he describes as a tribe is what really stands out to me. It could be sort of an ethnic group, a national group, and as long as it 
fits the narrative of being a tribe. It, it will be a tribe as far as he's concerned. And I've kind of and I've looked at sort of ethnic conflict and read the uh, primordialists who uh, again argue the same. thing. That's a good thing. word. I don't. I don't think we hear that enough. It's in it's, life. Uh, it's it, it really kind of appeals to that 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 sort of core idea at the heart. This primordial being. It's. I'm kind of thinking of um, generating a term of uh, paleo-psychology, of this idea that we are all cavemen at heart and this is how we fight and we fight like cavemen. But the ultimate, kind of the, the one fact about human psychology is its plasticity. It's very flexible and and it's it's hard to pin down, which makes it... But at the same time, there is a tendency to in human psychology to want to pin things down and to understand the world around in as simple terms as possible. And I think this is kind of one way that, one example of that, this idea that there are tribes that are emerging again. And uh, it's it's a nice, it's an interesting way of looking at things. It's a, an interesting lens. But it, it, when you look at the evidence and uh, the way things have changed over time and, and, and the fact that you can just, what you're really trying to say are groups. Mm. And that word works a lot better in, in this context. And you kind of think, well, is, is, is tribe really the right word? Because on the one hand, like it's, it's to, to throw another piece of academic jargon around, like it's highly constructivist, not essentialist in one regard, which is that like people who believe in this kind of thing would might sometimes think that the things that differentiate people are in some sense like fundamental, that there are these groups and they mean something and, you know, trying to ignore the differences between them is, is, is meaningless. Whereas he's not really saying that at all. He's essentially saying the specific content of the group category is arbitrary and the things that distinguish people is arbitrary. The one thing that is essential and constant is the fact that we'll fish around and find something that can serve as the divider between us and then we'll we'll like dress that up as a, pri- a, pr- a primal or, or, or a deep thing. So it's like essentialist about that aspect of human nature while being really quite breezy about the fact that, sure, it could be anything. Like all the, all the stories we tell ourselves about what the real groups that matter are, that's just, uh, that's just invented in a way. I think there's, I mean, there's, it's true that people form groups. That's a core aspect of human psychology or social psychology is people form groups, form group identities, and um, uh, the other way of looking at this is it's it's what allowed humans to evolve is that as groups that they could sort of form boundaries around and work together with that it allowed people to do things that they couldn't do before to farm to hunt etc and, uh, and it's, it's not unique to humans but um uh, it's it's one of the aspects of human psychology but it doesn't necessarily uh require an antagonistic relationship between other groups Mm. This idea that if you form a group that you have to hate another is 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 specific. If if it was true, then we'd all be at conflict with other groups. Mm. But so neither extreme for me is is true. It's not true that uh, human nature is is uh, universally peaceful. That all groups must form together and in harmony. But likewise, this permanent antagonism is 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 uh, mm. is also not true. So it's somewhere in between. It's like groups form, and sometimes they can have different interests and opposing views and opposing issues and that's what causes the mm. conflict rather than the nature of there being groups mm. and scott i mean the the purpose to which he's tried to put this is to say that 
you know, the liberal version of what America is about, this idea that you create a a civic republic in which these kinds of divisions are, you know, contained and that people don't get don't get obsessed by one or a small number of untraversable fissures that that define society, especially, hopefully not geographically. Um, And that if you can hold it together, that experiment produces a society in which people just have, you know, healthier uh, capacity for live and let live relationships. But that that is inherently fragile, and basically, I think his point is that it's cutting against the grain to quite a to quite a firm degree with people, and that America, in trying to be its liberal best self, is trying to cut against the grain, and maybe the grain has like started making ground back up over the course of the over the course of the last while. That America is you know, America was in terrible trouble at one point before they had a big civil war. Um, America is uh, as a second. Shout out to the American Civil War today. Um, uh, America is perhaps entering a time when, if not like with civil war at the end of it, similar levels of intractable identity-based division with a geographical element are starting to creep in. Like the um, the effort to overcome the inevitable tendency in in, in people's worst selves is is failing. Well, I can understand consternation at the current state of the U.S. and. Indeed, I share a lot of the concern. But if you're going to write a self-serving Jeremiah, at least make it a Jeremiah that has something constructive in it, Um, which in another way is the quicker that this is put on the ash heap of wannabe analysis, the better, to pull no punches. Let me say that for a couple reasons. The first is before you get to the U.S., um, Sullivan, who tends to write in sweeping terms, writes in very sweeping terms about them over there. Uh, you know, he'll talk about Northern Ireland and it's simply Catholic versus Protestant. Or he talks about the abstraction of the Middle East and it's all about, oh, they're all fighting over religion. I presume he means Sunni versus Shia, for example. Um, you know, you know, he's sort of like, oh, they're kind of ethnic and tribal and religious and they're all each other's throats. I mean, an almost complete vacuum of knowledge of what is actually happening over there. But we'll save that for the moment. When you, what concerned me is when you bring it back to the States – and you and I, you know, we've had lengthy discussions on the podcast and continue to do so about some serious issues, about the state of media in the, in the U.S., about the state of the political system, about the state of discourse, the way that it concerns. But what Sullivan does is he creates this imaginary image of tribes uh, just to have pops at people. So, for example, he doesn't say much about the right. They get off pretty lightly in this, but he swings at the left, and Sullivan – is one of these people who's made his reputation on, ah, you know, I'll speak truth to power to the so-called left, and then creates this artificial thing throughout this essay about how it's the left that's intolerant, denying free speech, and yada, 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 yada. Look, the fact of the matter is, is that that is a caricature of what is happening regarding social, economic, and political issues in the states. It's a caricature uh, through its absence of what is happening on the right. And so I'll just say a couple of things. I mean... Um, you know, I've got relatives that bring to my family. I've got Trump-supporting relatives down in Georgia. And they don't support Trump because they're a member of a tribe. They support Trump because they have become disillusioned with what they see as being, quote, Democrats. They have reasons with which I disagree, but it's not some tribal affiliation. Um, I've got other relatives who are conservative Mormons. They are very concerned about Trump. Uh, they are very open as to something must be done. That's not because they're part of a Mormon tribe. It's part because of 
they're worried about silver fabric. And why I hate this essay and why I hate it is, is when you start constructing your imaginary tribes rather than imaginary nation, when you set up a straw man like that, okay, fine, it serves Andrew Sullivan because he can portray, I'm, you know, I'm the, the outsider and you know, I'm identifying this for you. And, uh, and I'm gay and conservative. Well, kudos to you, mate. When you set this up as tribes, it's a little miniature version of that pernicious notion on a global scale of clash of civilizations, which has just about as much as foundation as this does. And these have effects. As much as I would want Sullivan's essay to disappear, mm-hmm. if enough people read it, they will absorb it and they will use it to back up their very tribal notions, as he would frame it, their own prejudices that he is supposedly fighting against because they'll say, look, he said it's tribal disputes. Let's get it on. Mm. I suppose that's that's true that, I mean, it is written very much as an exhortatory piece about how this is bad and it needs conscious effort to avoid it. But I suppose there is always a risk that some people will read it and they'll go, there's a fundamental instinct towards tribalism and now we have these two calcified drives. People will go, awesome. I never need to like think hard about anything again. Like, he's saying like, this comes from a failure to think hard. It like, makes, makes life easy because you can slot into a groove and everyone takes that as an endorsement of doing it as opposed to like the chastisement of uh, the problematic phenomenon. There's an appeal to, to oversimplify complex conflict in terms of two groups fighting it out for the uh, uh, for one issue or the other and I think that's there's something sort of from a psychological perspective it's it's there's something that always um, I kind of remember learning as an undergrad always a useful lens is this concept of uh, outgroup homogeneity and in-group heterogeneity they are always the same just like one group whereas we are a bit different mm-hmm. and like I, you kind of see this in in, in that article, and I've seen it in a lot of other work where basic, and especially people who approach a conflict from a distance, they're looking to simplify it and see them as two groups. Whereas if you actually sort of spend time in the context, you'll often find the, the large variety and range of issues. I mean, to try and say there are two groups within a sort of population mm. of 400 million people, it's a very big tribe. I don't think it's very cohesive as a tribe. So... Mm. Um, I, I, I find it sort of good for copy, good for uh, making a, a controversial article and uh, making things exciting. But it's, it, you know, again, I, I hope it's sort of, there are no sort of more malevolent mm-hmm. uh, motives there, but uh, it's but, not I mean, yeah, accurate. I, I mean, to give him some credit, uh, you know, he he himself has a pretty good track record, especially in recent years. You know, having been someone who you know wrote primarily for a conservative audience, works in conservative circles of taking elements of the cultural drift of the Republican Party and saying this is terrible and bad and we shouldn't be doing it. And especially like during the Obama era, he was relatively sympathetic to Obama's. You know, because I mean, in a way, this kind of article is you know with slightly different language is the kind of stuff Barack Obama like was built to do which is to say if we think about it this way everything will break whereas we need to think about it this way instead and maybe we can build a kind of better civic civic culture but I think what he's trying to um, put his finger on that is an annoying phenomenon is people who aren't prepared to do that people who either because they lack the capacity for self-criticism or because they lack the courage to ever be critical of whatever they perceive their team or group to be uh, silently but 
willingly remo- or, or at least uh, um, ostensibly uh, speedily and enthusiastically change their view on whatever the topic may be in line with whatever happens to be the view of the leader of the group that they are associated with. So, you know, this is a phenomenon. I mean, it's the reason why this article got written right now. Like in, in American politics, there are all sorts of polls that you can reel off in recent years about the most extreme example is usually Republican, self-identified Republicans, 180 degree changing their view on important issues mm-hmm. because Donald Trump, um, you know, came, uh, has done so. So, for I mean, two good examples, one of which is cited in this in this piece is that the number of um, uh, evangelical Christians who were polled saying that they think that personal character is an indispensable dimension uh, as to whether or not you can be a worthy political leader used to be, um, you know, whether or not you can be bad as a person and still be fine in office used to get like maybe 20 something percent for that. Now you like in the space of a tiny amount of time you're up uh you know well past 50 percent i think it was somewhere around 70 was was the figure the only possible explanation for which is that people have rationalized their support for donald trump but you can get it on issue areas as well to do with you know russia or uh tax policy or healthcare or whatever it is there's this feeling that um people basically are much less attached to the consistency of the ideas and the public policy positions they adopt uh, and much more attached to the idea of staying on the right side of whatever group they belong to. And that is a problem on the American right, which is like, like has metastasized into a monstrous uh, phenomenon that's eating politics alive right now. But, you know, on the left, it is also problematic. And, you know, part of why I have a little bit of sympathy with it maybe is because I'm someone who sees himself as being on the center left, but who devotes at least a portion of his his time to arguing with other people on the left because I think they're like being inconsistent or dumb about something, um, and that's just it, it is vexing sometimes when um, uh, when people are so attached to their whatever you want to call it partisan or group affiliations that 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 becomes. That, that 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 takes precedence over their willingness to grapple with matters of intellectual or policy principle. Um, both of those things will always exist, but if one starts to become dominant, one can see how it's bad because you can't you can reason with people to some extent if they're still listening to issues of consistency and rationality and principle. You can't as easily at least manage the situation if the difference you have is basically like my team, your team, and we're going to win. There is, there is the fact that it's, it's relatively unique to Trump in some ways. So I was reading the, some social psychology analysis of, of Trump rallies, and they describe them as identity festivals. I saw that. I like that term. Mm, I, I mean, it makes it sound like way more pleasant, but I guess it is pleasant for them, uh, which is the thing. It's it's a kind of you know, the rallies are very much about as as they um, this is based on ethnographic and psychological research where people went in and described the events that took place, and the idea was that it would be very very secure and there'd be security to make sure there were no outsiders, and that would be very much part of the theatre. There'd be a long build up to kind of build up this um, his arrival, and then it would it would. Try and create a, a common 
identity amongst people with the media pendant at the back and then being blamed and and mm. the idea being it sets up a narrative of what's wrong with the country and who's at fault being sort of the others the media the outgroups etc the political class and how he mm. was the answer but this identity was you know it's, it's uniquely sculpted it seems to be um as far as i understand it compared to other, any other political campaigns i've never come across these sort of identity festivals and one where there's a unique group of people who are there and and with that i think it brings in um uh, a lot of people who conform to uh, that one leader's views so um, i can see that being a, a real really unusual in this case that one mm. b- one party leader would have such an influence and and largely because his views tend to be quite um mm. capricious yeah, um, uh, watching them rotate, as, you know, on a dime is quite. Uh, on a as dime part of why it's, you know, Jonathan Chait's been very good writing about this. The you know the Republican Party over the years um, has tended to harvest votes from like a large, disgruntled, primarily white, uh, primarily uh, non-coastal, uh, non-urban population, and has convinced itself over an extended period that this is because these people believe in small government conservative ideological values. Part of why Trump discombobulates them is because what he appears to have done is pulled back the curtain and revealed that basically it's like nationalism tinged with racial resentment. And that's all it's ever been. And, uh, you know, you can you can use that as a vehicle to get the conservative ideological stuff done too, but it was never really about that. And that you know, has, has sort of dented the sense of self of many of the, the more ideological people on the right. So one of the issues with social psychology and collective action is it's not necessarily the narrative or the ideology that's the issue, but competence. And people will follow a group or more likely to associate with a group, not necessarily by what their morals are, but what they can get done and this might be very much a case here where donald trump is seems to be someone who's competent who's come out of nowhere and who's made millions billions depending on who you ask and um has if only we could ask the tax man because he released his returns uh, sadly that will be a cold day in hell apparently but that that's what's the appeal is competence and um people are perception of competence perception of competence if you exactly and that's uh, it's very much about perceptions and that's what people buy into mm. rather than his ideology per se and if a competent individual tells you mm. that this is what you should vote for it's going to be more influential than uh, I mean, that, I mean, I, I, argued it, it's quite sympathetic when you think about it like that because like you know I don't want to make this all about me but like again another thing that, that can be frustrating is you know people who are say elected officials are actually involved in politics but their whole thing is just to like flamethrow their own side constantly because they've got you know some point of principle they want to they, they want to talk loudly about even when that's clearly being teed up and actively encouraged by people on the other side who just want to distract or get in the way like sometimes if you want to get things done through for example a complex difficult legislative process you know you need a whole bunch of people who will at least consider themselves enough of a group to like set up some priorities park some side issues and and, and get some stuff done and we all we'd all want to say mostly i would think apart from the anarchists that that's a good thing um but it, but it very readily slips into excusing the inexcusable and waving waving away critiques simply because you know they're aimed at your friends and you don't want to hear ill of them. Mm. I, I think if Andrew Sullivan had taken these points on board, I'd be much happier with this. I mean, let's just throw a couple things in. One is, is um, demagogues. Of Donald Trump, not the first demagogue. 
to come in through American politics. I mean, there's a fellow named Huey Long back in the 1930s that could work the mood pretty good. And then George Wallace from my neck of the woods was running identity politics back in the 1960s pretty effectively. And I think if Andrew Sullivan had actually called this out instead of playing around with this, you know, loose term tribes, then we're getting somewhere, which is is that Trump does tap into a language of threatened identity, especially threatened masculine identity, although he's got a lot of women supporters as well, but he taps into that. But maybe they like retrograde masculinity as an ideal too. Well, actually what happened there, just this is where you could expand on what Sullivan's talking about, is that a lot of what happened last year is that a lot of women who voted for Trump had a bitter hatred of Hillary Clinton. And mm-hmm. there's a lot that's working there in terms of dynamics, gender dynamics, uh, there, but we'll leave that to the side. I mean, the broader point here is, is that um, one thing that Sullivan never touches upon, never touches upon because he's playing around with this, is that a lot of what mobilizes that he thinks are tribes is simply people who not only are worried about identities, but they're resentful. They are resentful because they think leaders are not serving them or that their rights are being transgressed. Thus, I return to the fact about how he completely misses what's happening overseas. But in the States, as much as I may disagree with a lot of folks who voted for Trump, when those folks came out, a lot of folks came out simply because it's like nobody's paying attention to us economically. We feel like we're not being served. We feel like Washington is distanced from us. That is not new and so on. And that's a question of the effectiveness of governance and the effectiveness of systems. And Trump's, or I should say Sullivan's little little Jeremiah here, not only does he not actually deal with Trump very much so, he doesn't actually deal with that broader question, that if American politics is going to be fixed, uh, it's got to be fixed with some serious questions about delivering on economic and social issues beyond groups, beyond mm-hmm. an individual group. And, uh, and when Andrew Sullivan actually wants to deal with issues of health care and deal with issues of like this uh, tax cut mm-hmm. and how it benefits one tribe, the wealthy, if you want to use that term at the expense of everyone else, then we'll talk. We've got to uh, we've got to wrap it up, but I guess the last thing I'd say to is that um, to the extent that it contains an element of hope, and who knows if it really comes from Andrew Sullivan or if it was that someone gave him the draft back and said <laughs> this contains no hope. Can you find some? Um, it is that the guy he used to support, um, Isaac Chotner, pointed this out in, in slated yeah. response to the article uh, that, that Barack Obama was in many ways um, the embodiment of what Andrew Sullivan says is the required fix for this, which is politicians who attempt to be reasonable, uh, to avoid explicit appeals to like exclusive group identity, to appeal to civic virtues, um, to be empirically grounded in what they say. And it seems like eight years of that, admittedly with an assist from campaigning Republicans absolutely enraged and infuriated people and brought them to the boiling point where they voted for like this chaos muppet um, of racial <laughs> grievance who, 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 is, who is Donald Trump. So it's almost like, you know, the ongoing political contest needs to contain a bit more of a safety release valve for these kinds of in-group, out-group I win, you lose sentiments because having some Spock-like character, uh, like who people perceive as beating them, but who then doesn't even like who then <laughs> uh, adopts a kind of aloof professorial demeanor that pretends it isn't even happening because like that's not the nature of the contest. Like it seems like if you, it almost feels like if you were just um, 
run as a an uncompromising uh, leftist liberal and then like spiked the ball behind the touchdown line and voted a bunch of stuff through and then said eat it and then like uh, the, 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 a certain part of the American Republican base would have lived with that more readily than than um, the kind of calm and distant demeanor of serenity that that, that overlaid it. Uh, that, of course, and the fact that he's black, uh, which I suspect may be something to do with it too. But we'll leave it there. Um, I think we've set the world to rights. Thank you very much for listening. You can follow the Political Worldview podcast on Twitter, at Poll Worldview, and please do. Uh, you can also find us on Facebook, uh, facebook.com forward slash Poll Worldview, P-O-L Worldview, where you can like our show page and see articles and links, etc. Subscribe to us on SoundCloud or iTunes. That's free. That gives you the update every time we bring a new edition out. And if you could do one special favor for me, personal favor, uh, share us on social media and recommend that um, people listen to us because that's how the word that we're worth listening to tends to get around. Our participants today have been Scott Lucas. Where can people find you on social media, Scott? Well, you can find me at Scott Lucas underscore EA at Twitter or at Political Worldview's partner site, uh, the news and analysis uh, aspiring giant, EA Worldview at eaworldview.com. Samed, do you have a social media presence to which you would care I to alert the world? I do indeed. It's uh, at Samed Rao. And how's Quite that spelled? Oh, Not that true. I want to suggest it isn't intuitively obvious. Should be. Um, S-U-M-E-D-H-R-A-O. Awesome. I'm Adam Quinn. You can find me on Facebook. I'm the guy standing next to Lyndon Johnson, Adam Quinn 161. Um, I am also on Twitter, although I less often there, at Adam James Quinn. Go to Facebook. That's, that's, where, you, that's where you'll find me. Um, our producer is Connor McKenna. Uh, you've been listening to us from the Political Science and International Studies Department of the University of Birmingham in England, and we have been brought to you with the kind sponsorship of the University of Birmingham Alumni Impact Fund. Thanks very much to them for their support. They are awesome, and we really appreciate it. We'll be back soon. We very much hope you will be too. Bye. Y'all take care. Bye. Bye.